Genesis 26, it's the best chapter because we're studying it tonight. So, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Kind of a weird little sentence right there, right? It's telling you something. When the Bible does stuff like that, it's very purposeful. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Brilliant. There's a famine. And the very first thing the author says is, besides the famine that was in the days of Abraham, what we're going to see in the Bible is there's cycles. There's a famine in the days of Abraham, and there's a famine in the days of Isaac, right? They eventually meet the same dude. His name is Abimelech. It's possible it's a title. Abimelech is a title. But it's also very probable that Abimelech was a young man when Abraham met him during a famine. And now he's an old man, probably 100 years old. People were living longer then. They were eating organic. There wasn't all these pesticides and all this junk, right? So they were eating very, they were just living longer. They were healthier. They were men, you know, paleo diet, whatever it was. That was normal what they ate. So just, they had long lives. So now it's about 75 years later, he could be 100 years old. It could be why he doesn't try to grab Rebecca, right? He grabbed Sarah last time. This time he doesn't try to grab Rebecca. Could be because he's 100 years old. He's like, nah, you know, those were for my young days. Not worried about that anymore, right? But what we're seeing is there's these cycles. The same trial that Abram had to walk through, Isaac now walks through. There's a famine. They're afraid. They lie. <laughs> they meet Abimelech. Same one. I think as parents, we sometimes make the mistake of trying to protect our children from the inevitable trials that are coming into their life. We become the curling parent. You know what that is? The one that just gets in front of our kids and tries to sweep away any little obstacle from their life. Make it smooth sailing. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. There's a guy, his name is Ronald Melzick. 
And he did this really interesting study on Scottish Terrier puppies. So they were born, the moment that they were born, they were removed from their siblings and from their mom. They are put in a padded enclosure. They touched nothing harsh. They didn't have other little puppies biting and nipping at them. They didn't have a mom stepping on them or nipping at them or barking at them. Perfect, peaceful, soft, cozy environments. And he did that for about six months. And then he began to test them. And what he found was they were completely ill-equipped for life. So they would put their nose up to a burning candle and they would smell that burning candle until their nose sizzled off. Because their pain, their ability to understand pain never matured. That the same signal in your nose that tells you, hey, your nose is running, it's the same signal that says, hey, your nose is on fire. The difference is your brain interprets that signal like, hey, there's a fire in front of us, we're on fire. That's what the difference is. These dogs had never gone through that process of getting poked and pushed and, right? And because of that, they were ill-equipped for life. I think sometimes we do the same thing. We try to make things too easy, too trouble-free for our kids. Did you know this? The Western jaw is shrinking with every generation. It's why wisdom teeth don't fit in your jaw anymore. It's why if you've had kids and you've taken them to the orthodontist, they're like, well, we got to pull a couple of teeth besides their wisdom teeth because their jaw is too small. Do you know why the Western jaw is shrinking? Because we eat too soft of food. Everything we eat now is soft. If you've ever been to a third world country and you've eaten their chicken, you know the softest parts, the breast, they're about as chewy as gristle. Right? The, the legs, man, it's like you're chewing on a piece of iron. And what that does for those kids is years and years of eating hard stuff actually makes their jaws bigger and their teeth fit their jaws because they're exercising and they're using, they're chewing, right? So I learned this when Myron was probably four or five years old. From that point forward, I take him out and have him just chew on gravel. Bro, <laughs> Superman, man, you're gonna have one of those Superman jaws right now. It's like almost as a society now, we've made it soft. And we're protecting our children from the very things that made us strong. The gravel that got us equipped, the, the pain and stuff that made us the people that we are. We can't be helicopter parents. We can't be curling parents, right? We don't go out and beat up the person that gossips about our child. That's not the right way to do it. So, what does God do? Does God remove the famine from Isaac? Bro, I don't want you to go through, I don't want you to go through difficulty. So I'm going to remove the famine. Does God do that? Because he could have. Uh-uh. He lets the famine go. Let's the difficulty hit Isaac. And this is what he says to him in verse three. Sojourn, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. That's what God says. And he actually kind of recaps all the Abrahamic promises, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. He squishes them into one and says, hey, bro, you're the one. 
your offspring are gonna inherit this land. I'm gonna bless every nation that blesses you. You're the one. Doesn't remove it from him, knows that this is actually what Isaac needs. He needs a famine right now because it's gonna make him into the kind of person that will be able to handle the life that's coming for him. So good. And then verse five, we could have spent all night on this one verse, but I have to teach the whole chapter. Listen to this. This is God eulogizing his friend Abraham. God reflecting on walking and talking and knowing Abraham for a hundred years. This is God's evaluation. Let me read it for you again. Because Abraham obeyed my voice. Obey there is the word Shema. It's from a lot of places in the Bible, but Deuteronomy 6.4 is the most famous one called the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. The Shema there is here because Shema can be interpreted, translated either hear or obey. And when it's used for God, it's always obey. Because to hear God means you must obey God. If he is God, you have no choice. So it's Abraham shemad my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah, my law. Isn't that fascinating? What laws were given to Abraham? What commandments were given to Abraham? Because the law from pretty much this point forward, it's Exodus, begins to refer to the giving of the commandments. They don't come until about 400 years after this, Exodus 20. And then God adds 603 more laws. But there's no law, no Torah ever given to Abraham. So what in the world is God talking about? What are his commandments? He didn't give commandments. What, what are his statutes? What are his, what's his Torah? God didn't give any of those. What did Abraham do? Genesis 15, God comes to him, says to him, hey, look up in the sky. See the stars? If you can number them, your descendants are gonna outnumber the stars. I don't care that you're almost 100 years old, Abraham. That's what's happening to you. And how did Abraham respond? It's Genesis 15, verse six. And Abraham believed. The Hebrew word there, amen. Abraham amened God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Like, are you kidding me? God, you're gonna do that for me at 100? No way, amen, so be it. And God said, that's exactly what I want. I want people that believe I am good and generous. Good job, Abraham. That's what he did. 
He believed God was good and generous. And that's what all the rest actually does. And then later on in Genesis 22, when God asks Abraham to do something that is unthinkable, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him, Abraham obeys God. How could he do it there? Because Abraham believed God was good and generous, and they would come back down that mountain. It's what he says to his servant. I know God's goodness. I know his generosity. This does not make sense to me right now, but I am putting my faith on the line as I don't even understand this, but I'm trusting God when it doesn't make any sense. And God says, that's the kind of people I'm looking for. If you know your Bible, Galatians says the entire law is parenthetical. What God actually wanted? Abraham's. That believed. Simple faith. In him, his goodness, his generosity. That's righteous, according to God. Read Romans, read Galatians. Over and over, Abraham is held up as the guy. That's it, father of faith, right? Brilliant. He fulfills all that, and he was not a perfect man. We've studied him. He lies about his wife. He's dishonest. He takes on Hagar. He does some, some stuff that's not great. But what God remembers is his faith in him. And he put it all on the line when it did not make sense, trusting God's goodness, trusting God's generousness. That's what God wants. So good. All right, so there's a famine. And now we see Isaac following the sins of his father. So verse six, Isaac settled in Gerar. It's a border town. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Where had he heard that before? His dad. <laughs> For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. The sins of the father. First off, Abraham and Isaac, man, they married up, didn't they? Because their wives are like incredible. You ever notice that? Like you go to a restaurant with your wife and you see a couple walk in and you're just like, what is up with that? Dude, that guy's either got cash or he's got game because that doesn't make sense right there. <laughs> Happens to me everywhere I go with charity. Dude, what is it with you? <laughs> but this is a warning for me as a dad. Kids are like the NSA. They're always recording Everything you do, every move you make, they're always recording it. 
be careful. I know this. I, have, I am rarely serious. If you know me well enough, you know I'm always just on the edge of joking. I've got kind of a dry humor. I'm always joking. And sometimes my kids pick it up. So Myron, when he was like maybe two or three, we were down in the barn and we were building something together. And all of my kids have gone through this stage. I don't know if it's normal or what. There's a point they stop calling me dad and they start calling me Matt. And I just don't like it. I'm dad, right? So Myron starts calling me dad when I'm working on this. I said, hey, Myron, my name is Matt, but I'm your dad. So when you talk to me, call me dad, okay? And he dead looked at me in the face and said, okay, Matt. I just went, oh, he's got me. Oh, great. Yep. He's the NSA. He's been paying attention, man. So what happens to Isaac is exactly what happens to his dad. He's afraid. Fear. What's the number one command in the Bible? Don't be afraid. What are we always doing? Being afraid. That's why it's the number one command in the Bible. A couple years ago, I was given the ministry application for the kids' wing. And I was looking over it, just looking at the questions it was asking. And one of the questions it asked was, do you smoke? And, and I asked, why do we ask that question? Now, I'm not saying smoking is healthy. It's not healthy. If you smoke, try to quit, right? It's not good for you. But I'm like, why is that the question there? Like, if we're going biblical, shouldn't we ask, like, are you afraid? <laughs> are you greedy? Do you love your neighbor? Like, those are actually biblical. Why are we asking smoking, right? It's like, sometimes I think we get so far off. We're like, wait, what are we doing? What are we doing? How much sin can be traced back to fear? Decisions we make financially because of fear. How much does peer pressure, the fear of your peers not liking you or saying something negative you are, how much does fear cause young people to make really poor decisions in their life? Fear not. It causes Isaac to do just what his dad had done, same thing. So here's what happens. They're out in a field, verse eight says. And the ESV says they were laughing. <laughs> now maybe you're with your wife and you guys laugh all the time, that's great. They weren't laughing. The RSV puts it like this, cuddling, <laughs> caressing. They were getting physical out there. And Abimelech happens to be like at a window. He looks at it, he's like, what? If you're brother and sister, yuck, what is happening, right? So he's like, that ain't right. Calls in Isaac and is like, dude, are you kidding me? What are you doing? And you have again, a pagan with a better moral compass than a believer, right? I grew up in a church where it was like us versus them. We're on the inside and we're the good guys. Just us, right here, we're good. Everybody out there, evil and bad and look out. Look out for the music they play because if you listen to that music, man, Satan will get into your soul through the drum beat and you will go kill your neighbor, right? Look out. So I was under this kind of impression, like, look out, bad guys out there. If you go out there, you're going to be Ozzy Osbourne, bite the heads off bats. 
but that's not true, is it? Sometimes unbelievers have better moral compasses than you and me. And the best way for us to live life is not being like, oh, I'm so much better than you, is always remembering God's grace. Maybe G.K. Chesterton gives the best way forward. That famous author from 100 years ago writes good Christians a brilliant. Orthodoxy is such a brilliant book. And he was asked by the London Times, gigantic newspaper at the time, please give us an essay on what is wrong in the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back this, dear London Times, what is wrong in the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And that should be everyone's initial response. I'm what's wrong. Look in the mirror. Is it I? Not them out there, they're so terrible. No, God, what about me? Show me where I need to change. Look in the mirror, right? That's what he does. So Isaac here is learning a very important lesson through famine and difficulty and being called in his junk. He's learning it, that God in his grace can wring good from evil. So he's all afraid of being down there. Now you've got the king, Abimelech, the one he lied to, the one he deceived, the one he was really playing like a fool. Now he becomes his protector. Don't you dare touch this man. And don't you dare touch his wife or I will kill you. See, in the famine, in his fear, he's learning an important lesson about God. God's gonna fight for me. I don't have to be afraid, why? Because God's with me and he will fight for me. And now you see the faithfulness of God in spite of his sin. And Isaac, verse 12, sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Yahweh blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. I love this. He sins, he lies, he's fearful, he's in a border town, he's not really where God wants him to be, you know, he's kind of, a, kind of down here, and then what happens? God blesses him 100-fold. Like August with people in their zucchini, like more than you could ever deal with, like that. 25-fold would be amazing. 15 is off the charts. 100-fold? No way. This is divine blessing. Have you ever been just a moron and had God bless your socks off? Right? It, don't you like, don't, please don't bless me right now. Don't, don't do it. I want to do at least something that feel like I earned it. Isaac knows I did nothing to earn this, man. I was a moron. I was afraid. I'm not really where I'm supposed to be. I'm on a border town. I should be up in Beersheba, you know, and God blesses his socks off. Isn't that the way of God? Man. And this group that watches this hundredfold increase, what do they do? They're jealous. 
What could they have done? Bro, why are you getting a hundredfold increase? Because I'm serving Yahweh. But they don't choose to do it that way. What do they do? Get away from us. We don't even want you around. So interesting about humanity. We tend to do that. Jealousy makes us make the poorest decisions in life. Do you know that? Like there was a study done. It was in a Philip Yancey book. And it's from like early 90s. So very old survey, but the idea is the same. People were asked this question. If you had choice A, you make $50,000 a year. Your friends and your family, they all make $25,000 a year, right? So you're making $50,000 a year. You're the top of your heap. That's option A. Option B was you make $125,000 a year, a lot more money, but all of your crew makes $250,000 a year. Which option would you choose? The vast majority chose option A because humanity is so weird. We're such a jealous, petty people that we end up making poor decisions that actually hurt us in the long run. So God here is working on a couple of levels, I think. He's not only telling Isaac, man, my grace is bigger than your blow-it caseness. He's also showing Isaac, even when I am faithful to you, there's still gonna be evil around you. Have you found that? Even when God's faithful, man, a hundredfold, then you got an evil attack because that's the world we live in. So this is learning for Isaac, right? I don't want you to be one of Robert Melzack's puppies that's ill-equipped for life. I'm growing you. I'm leading you. And then we see this incredible little story of the wells where you get fruitfulness. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. He's slowly making his way back where he's supposed to be. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. He gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, what's the best well you could ever find? Spring water. You know what that means? It's coming out, bubbling out. of. The, you're not dropping a bucket down 25 feet or 50 feet and then pulling a bucket up. It's bubbling out. Best spring you could ever want. Best well you could ever dig. The herdsmen, verse 20, of Gerar, quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well. And they quarreled over that well. So he called its name Sitna and moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehabah, meaning room for me. For now Yahweh has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. One of the qualities I love with Abraham, Isaac's dad, is he was a peacemaker. He was willing to just, I'm gonna make peace. I'm gonna make peace. Now you've got Isaac doing the same thing. Instead of like fighting over this, he just moves to the next one. You know how unnatural it is to be a peacemaker? We don't naturally want to make peace. Do you know that? We naturally want to fight. 
So I, I cut this out many years ago. And this is called a toddler's property laws. So you've heard of the government property laws? Toddlers have property laws. Listen to these. Law number one, if I like it, it's mine. <laughs> Law number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> That's our natural bend right there. Peacemaking is something incredible. Isaac, because of what happened with Abimelech, because of what he saw God do there, he starts to realize, I can trust him. He can fight for me. He sees, he'll repay. I'm gonna move on. Yeah, we lost a lot of time. Yeah, we dug a well. Yeah, it's the best well you could possibly imagine. But you know what? Momentary loss, long-term gain. I'm out of here. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter five, verse 40. If someone wants to sue you to take your coat, give them your tunic as well. Make peace. We would say today, if someone sues you to take your car, give them your truck as well. That's how important garments were back then. I mean, this is radical, incredible. Don't waste any time. It's always humorous to me how we kind of pick and choose the Bible verses that we'll follow, right? Like, really? Are we, anyone doing that? Anyone doing that? Because I think deep down, we still bless, we still doubt verse three. Is God really with us? Is he really gonna bless us? Is, he, is it really gonna be up to him or do we need to contend as well? It's not Isaac. And what we're seeing is God is slowly moving him from where he should not be, Gerar, a border town, up to the valley of Gerar. He's slowly moving him back to where he's supposed to be in Beersheba. That's where he's actually supposed to be. And God is using relational issues, strife, contention to direct him. He's using peace. Finally, Rehoboth, okay, there's room for me. Yeah, because you're heading the right direction. He's using peace to get him where he's supposed to be. You know, God still does that. When there's chaos and strife and contention and no peace, guess what God might be doing? Matt, you're in the wrong spot right now. Start moving back to where I want you to be, right? Start getting it in gear. Colossians 4 puts it like this. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. The word rule there, it's the Greek word brabius, and it literally means to umpire. Safe or out. God's peace is safe or out. Man, this is chaos. This is strife. This is contention. This isn't working. Uh, I'm moving on. This is where I'm supposed to be. Like that very simple thing can help guide you and me back to where we're supposed to be. James 3 puts it like this. That horses are guided with bits and ships are guided with rudders. And then he goes on to say, there's a wisdom that comes from below 
and it's contentious and strife and no good. But then there's a wisdom that comes from above and it's peaceable. That I'll know the wise way to go in life when it's peace, not contention, not crazy, right? I love that. That's what's happening right here. And he's slowly moving through strife, through contention, getting Isaac to Beersheba where he is supposed to be, back in the promised land. I think God does that for us. In Revelation 3, Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus says this, hey, you've done a lot of good things, but I've got one thing against you. You've left your first love. Remember from whence you've fallen. Repent and redo your first works again. God, I'm just out of peace. There's chaos, there's strife, there's contention. Yeah, Matt, because you've moved out of Beersheba. Remember, repent, and get back to what you were doing before, the peace that God wants for all of us, right? So he had the sins of the father. Now check this out. He begins to get the faith of his father. From there, verse 23. He went up to Beersheba, and Yahweh appeared to him the same night. How funny is that? The night he gets where he's supposed to be, guess what happens? God shows up and said, I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham. What does that mean about Abraham? He still exists. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is the first altar Isaac makes. When he finally, through strife, through contention, through broken relationships, through business deals that went bad, through jealousy, when he finally gets back where God wants him, he builds an altar. And then he pitches his tent. And then he digs a well. I love that order. Altar, God first. Tent, family next. Well, occupation. How good is that? I think there are relational budgets in the Bible. Most of us probably don't like a budget, but you know a budget that protects you from going bankrupt? It says, pay off the most important things first so you don't end up going to Disneyland and losing your house to foreclosure. So you put the most important things first, pay the mortgage, pay insurance, pay that, right? And then if you run out of money before you get to Disneyland, you just don't go. That's what a budget does for you. Here, I think the Bible teaches this. Here's the budget. You put God first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. You put family second. Above occupation, above ministry, family's second. There's no greater joy than to know your children walk in the truth, and then your occupation, then whatever else you want. This is what, this is what Isaac does. Altar first. Pitch my tent for my family, number two, and then we'll dig the wells for my occupation as a shepherd. Love that. When that gets out of order, look out. When family is put above God, look out. I've said this a million times. Men make great husbands, but they make terrible gods. 
Women make great wives, but they make terrible gods. Because what happens when we replace God with our spouse is we become really needy. We start trying to squeeze them for what they cannot give to us. They're not able to satisfy everything. And you just become clingy and needy and you drive them actually away from you. But when God is first, he fills my cup, it overflows. I'm not coming to the relationship needy, I'm coming with my cup overflowing, able to give to her, not take and extract from her. Kids can't be put up, and it happens all the time. I talked to this one lady who said this, if my child did that, it would kill me. I said, time out. You're giving way too much power to that child. That's God's power, period. Don't give that power to the child. It's God, family, occupation. There's your relational budget. Keeps you from going bankrupt. It's what he's learning right here. Now we have shalom. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuza, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come up to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of Yahweh. What are they forgetting right there? A whole bunch of strife and contention, a whole bunch of jealousy and problems, right? Hmm. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is Beersheba to this day. So you got this guy that his servants had been strife and contention and jealous and drew, drove him out of the land, comes and says, hey man, let's, have, let, let's, let's make peace. And what does Isaac do? Does he remind him of all the problems, all the issues, all the strife and contention, all the wells that he had dug and that were stolen from him? Nope. What does he do? Great, let's have peace. Let me make you a feast and let's make oaths. Isaac is becoming a giant spiritually. When you are able to do what Isaac just did right here and put history behind and make peace with people that have caused strife and contention and jealousy and problems and driven you out of your own territory, if you're able to make peace with them, you are a giant spiritually. That's what's happening right here with him. I love that. You wanna have peace in your marriage? Forget the history. I had this couple that five times, I met with them five times in a row, five weeks in a row. During our about 55 minute time, every time the wife would mention this one thing. The fifth time I said, listen, you're driving this marriage looking in the rearview mirror. You're gonna crash it. You've got to give up on the past. 
You've got to put it away. There may have been strife and contention and jealousy and problems in the past. If you want your marriage to work, you've got to say, all right, I'm flushing that. It's gone now. I'm gonna look through the windshield from now on. This is what Isaac does. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Jesus says this, blessed are the peacemakers, not keepers. Easy to keep the peace, right? Much easier. Peacemaking means I am actively going out and saying, I'm gonna make peace here. That is a spiritual giant. We've just seen Isaac grow tremendously in one chapter. He now becomes a peacemaker with people that have caused strife and contention, probably cost him tons of money. Brilliant. Brilliant. The New York Times, about five years ago, had this article, I just found it was fascinating. And it was this research that went into how much are reconciled good relationships worth financially. So they had this whole kind of formula that this university came up with to quantify good marriages, good relationships, good friendships, no strife, no contention, none of that. They said this, it is worth this amount of money to you, 200 $36,232 per year. That's how much peace is worth. And then they found the negative. If you're full of strife and full of contention and jealousy and all those problems, here's what they found. It is a negative of $255,000. The other direction, you want a giant raise this week? Make peace. Like Isaac, Put it behind you. I know it was strife. I, I know they stole that from us. I, I know we did a lot of work on that. I know it was the best world in the world. I get it. But I want peace above that. I want peace above being right. That's what he got here. So good. One final little note. When Esau was 40 years old, Esau is one of Isaac's sons. He took Judith, the daughter of Barai, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basimeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It's peace, it's shalom with some sadness because that's life. We don't get paradise until Jesus returns. You can have shalom, there's always gonna be sadness. And what, what I find fascinating is Isaac's able to do some amazing stuff with Abimelech and with people that had stolen wells from him and strife and contention. But he's not able to do it with his own daughter-in-law. Isn't that interesting? You know the difference between an outlaw and an in-law? Outlaws are wanted. LAUGHTER Some, for some reason, it's way harder in your house. Anyone here have no hands? Children that have married spouses that you just, uh? right? Somehow it's harder. It's in your own home. The grace that we can extend to an Abimelech or to these shepherds that did stuff to us, man, somehow that grace is bigger 
than the grace that we extend to the people in our own home that we're going to spend the next 50, 60, 70 years with. Are we kidding? Who wins in that? The enemy, the serpent. We need to be a people that say, I'm prioritizing the grace for my in-laws, for my children, for my family. I'm going to give them more grace, not less grace. Like we just take for granted our family and take for granted these. We shouldn't do that. We should have way more grace for those that are inside of our home than anywhere else. Even though we know them better, even, yeah, totally more grace. You will never regret it. John, that great apostle said, there is no greater joy than know your children are walking in the faith. Give them extra grace. Jesus, I thank you for Isaac. I thank you for the growth from the sins of the father to this brilliant peacemaker. I pray that we would be becoming a people that prioritize, not just peacekeeping as important as that is, but proactively being peacemakers, willing to forget strife and contention and whatever it is, saying none of that's worth it. Peace is more important. Help us, guide us in that. Empower us by your spirit to be those kind of people. I pray for dads in here. I pray that the path that we are charting even today is a path that we'll be proud our kids walk in as well because they're paying attention. I pray that we would be a people that realize how good your grace is for us. A hundredfold. And we would respond with gratitude. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.